Are you ready for the coming one world government, the coming one world economic system, and the coming one world religion? Because we're at a convergence point where these prophetic things are being fulfilled. Where is this coming from? Who's pushing this? The people that are pushing it are the ones that would like to control the world for their own benefit and stuff and, and you know, basically to limit us, to tell us what we should do with our lives and, and you know, with our, our resources. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome again to Canary Cry Radio. Thanks for tuning in today. My name's Basil. And I'm Gons, and uh, we have a very special guest on today. I heard about this gentleman um, from A View from the Bunker with Derek Gilbert. Uh, he's been on with him several times. I'm going to read his bio because it just really succinctly sums up uh, who he is. So, Carl uh, Tykrib has authored specialized reports in over 125 articles on globalization and its many subtopics. He has been an accredited observer and slash or participant in a variety of international events, including the United Nations Millennium Forum, the UN Third World Urban Forum, Global Governance 2002, and other major global conferences. Carl has held membership in key organizations centering on foreign affairs, regional issues, security slash intelligence studies, and macroeconomic concerns. He is currently president of the World Systems Research Group and a senior fellow with the August Review, when you can visit that, augustreview.com. He's given lectures across North America and has been a guest on several uh, various radio shows and most recently on our show, Canary Cry Radio. So welcome, Carl. How are you doing? Woo. I'm doing great. Uh, that, uh, it's really good to be with you guys, that's for sure. And, and I'm, I'm listening to that bio and I'm thinking to myself, man, that sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, well, a farm, I'm a farm boy. <laughs> there are days I'd rather be dirt biking or doing almost anything else than this type of work because yeah. it's heavy. Right, right. I'm sure. Well, I was going to say, I think succinct was a great word for it, Gons, because I mean, I, I, I think I read one, a bio that I wrote about myself a long time ago, and I would not call it succinct. <laughs> it's like, oh, I graduated from school and I, uh, I potted some plants the other day, just like stuff like that. But anyways, Carl, it's so nice to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Good to be with you guys. So, yeah, we, we just wanted to jump right in because, you know, I know you have a, a pretty interesting story. And, and actually, I just wanted to link to a view from the bunker, uh, the several episodes you've done there, because I think you tell sort of your background in, in a couple of those episodes with uh, Derek. So is it OK if we just jump in? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I know we, you, you talk a lot about global governance and, and we often hear about, you know, there's a new world order, there's an economic order coming, there's a military regime and a, and a one world religion and all this stuff happening. Uh, but again, you have a unique perspective on this because you've literally, you know, rubbed shoulders with some of these people and, and you've written about it for several years. So can you help us sort of internalize the reality of the push for global governance and and, and so we can sink our teeth into it a little bit more and make it more of a real thing. Because, again, we talk about it a lot. We hear about it a lot. But we don't really know the sort of the inner workings of how this is coming about. Well, first of all, I think people need to realize that what we're talking about is is a big idea that transcends generations. This isn't something that just happened overnight overnight. 
It's not something that is is taking place today and will come to fruition tomorrow. Uh, instead, this is something that has been going on for for literally for decades. This push towards globalization, towards international harmonization. You can really go all the way back uh, to the Progressive Era, the 1920s, and even earlier than that into the 1880s, and see how elements of these ideas were already being put together at that point in time, recognizing that we're going to be moving in the future into a period where these things will come together, where they will start to gel. And it's interesting, guys, as I go through the history of this, how you're seeing the groundwork that was laid 100 years ago or even even beyond that, and how it's all of a sudden becoming prevalent even right within your own communities within your within your high school curriculum within right. your business community within our churches you're seeing it everywhere it's just literally blossomed uh, like a flower that's that's having a you know the the warmth of a, of a of a summer day and it's just incredible how things have unfolded especially in the last 10 years or so but people need to realize this is a long-term long distance type of scenario that is now rapidly moving together in a way that we have not seen in the past right wow i just had a a question you said um you know this has been going on for decades and decades how does this particular movement uh the more modern sort of movement um coincide with you know a lot of us we we think about the certain uh you know secret societies or something of being hundreds of years old um is there is there a direct connection between sort of um the ancient sort of push for this with the modern oh no question about it and in fact if if you want to see where this all really kind of gets its heartbeat you have to actually look at genesis and the whole events surrounding the tower of babel which is really our our first post-flood experiment in human unification. We will unite around a common cause. We will build a structure symbolizing our unification, symbolizing our power in unity, and we will do what we please. And you see this already going all the way back through time as we as we reintroduce this idea over and over again, just in different formats, in different ways, culturally, religiously, politically, even economically. And then how not just the symbol of the Tower of Babel, but, but the concepts that, that center behind it pop up over and over again, even in our modern age. Uh, you know, what's, it's really fascinating, and this might be kind of just bouncing around a little bit. But if you take a look at, at even the, the structural symbolism of the Tower of Babel, you see how this has been used, even in the last 100 years, as a rallying point. Before World War II, pardon me, before World War I, there was a, a concerted plan by a, an Italian-based architect. Uh, he sent plans around the world with the idea of creating an international city that would have at its center a, a massive tower of progress symbolizing all of huma- humanity's unity, politically, mm-hmm. economically, religiously. And then, of course, World War I came along, the idea faded. But during the Soviet era with Stalin, before World War II, Stalin thought to do the same kind of idea. He was going to develop a palace of the Soviets with a, a massive structure in the center with a, a huge colossal 
statue of Lenin. And this was, in a sense, a humanistic Tower of Babel that he was going to erect, uh, demonstrating the idea of international communism as a unifying factor for, for human oneness. And of course, World War II comes along. That's the end of that story. But even today, uh, I just have to go down to, to my capital city, Winnipeg, and we have the Canadian Human Rights Museum that is, at this point, still under construction. But it's a massive ziggurat-styled building. Right. Its, archi- its architect recognized that what, what, it was, what the, he was actually doing was creating a symbol of human unity and enlightenment. And I'm like, oh, wow, guys, we're replaying the same old story over and over again. Absolutely. And that's, it's interesting. I find it really interesting how it's the idea that has endured forever. These people are serving the idea instead of necessarily even finding, um, you know, a way to materialize it in their own lifetimes, but just simply serving the idea gives them enough fulfillment. That's so true. And what you're really talking about is, is the worship of what we can do with our hands. It's the worship of what we can do ourselves. Right. It goes back to the whole Genesis 3 paradigm where we decide that we can become like God through our specialized knowledge. Right. You're not the first sort of researcher and, and some you know people that have looked into this that have echoed those things, and, and we certainly agree with that. But, you know, uh, that's a, it's a great segue because, you know, one of the reasons why we started this show, uh, Canary Cry Radio, we started you know a few months back, was to really bring awareness of the technological push. You know, you said what we can do with our own hands. You know, and the movement for singularity and and the a transhuman future, a posthuman reality, as well as you know, sort of this technocracy that's being built around us. We wanted to bring those things sort of, you know in light to the Christian community so that you know they're aware of it. I recently had a conversation with somebody that works in ministry. Um, and it was interesting because the topic of transhumanism came up in the first conversation we had, which doesn't normally happen, <laughs> but he brought up stem cell mm-hmm. research and it sort of, you know, steamrolled from there. But, you know, he's a young guy, he's in ministry and all this stuff. And he sort of had an interest in this topic, but, you know, I brought up, Hey, you know, they're, if they can chip you and you can sort of plug into the internet from your mind, what would you do? And he was like, Oh man, I would get that, you know, I would be the first in line to get that, you know? And I said, I said, you know, well, you know, as a, as a believer, as a Christian, um, don't you think there's a little bit more thought that should go into that? I mean, I, you know, I sort of worded it differently, but, and he kind of stopped and yeah, you know, you're right. So I, I feel like, you know, this whole concept is sort of moving so quickly that people aren't really stopping to think about it. But I, th- I know you've looked at transhumanism and technocracy and stuff like that. What do you think the role is for transhumanism as part of this new world order globalization agenda, how do they tie together? It definitely is part of it. Uh, and historically it's part of it. Transhumanism, contrary to a lot of the techno geeks, uh, transhumanism is not a new idea. This too is grounded in generations of, of thought and philosophy, uh, wrestling through what it means to be human moving beyond human, the idea of man taking evolution in hand and shaping humanity around our own ideas in our own image. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ability to keep up just with the technological side, all the, the, the uh, for lack of a better word, the gizmos out there. The, I mean, it's amazing what type of technology exists, what type of platforms are coming online. 
uh, I'm I have older computer systems. Uh, you, you know, all you have to do is have a computer that's two years old, and you've already got a dinosaur. Okay. Uh, you know, how do you keep up? It's incredible. I, I go on Second Life. I've been a participant on Second Life since I think 2009. Uh, so I'm I'm fairly familiar with with virtual worlds. Right. Uh, in fact, right. You know, so I, I'm not behind the times in some respects, and yet at the same and at the same time, it's almost impossible. It is impossible to keep up with the technological changes that are taking place, not on a on a yearly basis, but already on a monthly, on a weekly basis. Right. What's all happening? Where I find that I tend to focus then more on is the unifying idea behind what those technologies represent. And that is, again, this idea of what can we do with our own hands? How are we going to reshape and remold the world in our own image, in our own likeness? My first experience with transhumanism was in 2010, in a significant way, was in 2010 when I uh, attended the Mormon Transhumanist Association's uh, Spirituality and Transhumanism Conference. And uh, that was an eye-opener. I, I understood the concepts. Uh, I understood the concepts actually quite well because, again, this isn't new. If you read the works of, of uh, uh, Julian Huxley, uh, if you go back into some of the thinking during the, the 40s and, and 50s, uh, and there's actually a large body of, of literature that came through in the 1960s that spoke to the idea of of modifying humanity. Now that we have evolution in hand, we can modify humanity. Uh, but what struck me in, in all of this, whether it's the talk of the day right now or all the way back to the time of, oh golly, the Enlightenment, is this constant idea that we are in charge. It's an ancient right. hubris. That's what it is. A real ancient hubris. And if I'm really honest with myself, guys, I have that within myself as well. Right. I think we all do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And and uh, the, the, the part that I find so, um, I don't know, sort of mushy is where to draw the line or what is the difference between um, operating within, you know, this, this sort of spirit or, you know, how much of it do we just take part in because it is the, you know, it's what is the times where, where do you see that line being drawn? If it's not drawn already with the new technologies coming out where we should probably, you know, pull back on the reins a little bit. I look at motive. I look at motive first before I actually look at, at the technological side to it. What is the motive behind that technology? What is the what is the founder's goals with that with with any given technology? Right. Neil Postman has written some interesting books dealing with with some of these some of these issues. Same with uh, I believe Douglas Grufus a few years ago uh, wrote a, a very interesting a book on spirituality and cyberspace, recognizing that technology always brings about some type of change. There's always a pro and there's always a con. There's always a winner. There's always a loser. But again, what I end up having to do is actually look at, okay, the motivating factor for why I would use it or why it should be used by society or more importantly, why it's being pushed on society. Right. 
that's really fascinating when you take a look at how different technologies aren't just being subtly, subtly pushed. They are being, I mean, enormously pushed on society. My goodness, mm-hmm. you're not plugged in. If you don't have a mobile device on you all the time, mm-hmm. uh, you're not completely connected all the time, throwing out your personal data everywhere, well, you're right. a loser. There, there, you're, right. you're, you're there was loser. a recent article that, I think mentioned how if you don't have a Facebook account, you're socially inept, you know, so. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a very strong word for sure. <laughs> that's really interesting. Now, what, when they pushed, and I know we, we have, you know, social uh, sort of things pushing certain technologies. Um, I mean, what are some of the more sinister ways you see some technologies being pushed? Or maybe is it a little bit of a manipulative um, thing, I don't know, by doctors or uh, uh, just for example. Um, uh, I mean, what do you think? I think some of the more scary sides to the idea of, of technocracy and, and uh, transhumanism really comes through the projects that we don't see, uh, primarily through the, some of the military applications. And, and it's one of those kinds of things that it's difficult to really put your finger on uh, the idea of using of using chemical enhancement, uh, I and it's, that's been around for a long time. I've talked to ex-military guys and, and current military personnel. Uh, there are things within that realm that I look at. I just kind of scratch my head when I take a look at some of the the projects that come out in the public forum in the public uh, sphere uh, through even let's say DARPA. Right. Uh, you just kind of scratch your head, going, "We're going down this road." In a major way, I'm. Uh, my concern is not necessarily that we will even succeed in 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 producing the singularity. My concern is what kind of hell will we unleash in proving that we can do this thing? What what are we opening up here in terms of Pandora's box? Uh, and that's something that I've talked about with different people, even within the transhumanist community. Nobody has a handle on this thing, guys. Not in a real way. Not in a significant way. There are lots of ideas, lots of players, uh, lots of nations involved. It is, it is, it's going to be interesting to see what types of problems will be unleashed as we try to push the technology further and further and further. Uh, but again, I think some of the, the more radically dangerous uh, applications will, will probably exhibit themselves from a military point of view. And already that's beginning to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it, it's so interesting to talk to you because you, you've spent time sort of in this realm going to these events and things. I mean, what can you gather? Uh, you know, what's the scuttlebutt on the convention floor about? Like, uh, are these people, um, you know, considerate of some of these, the more dangerous, sinister parts of this uh, technocracy or this push for the technology? Yeah, there is. There are some people who recognize that that what we're talking about here really is is a potentially a huge can of worms. They, they, everybody realizes on, on the convention floor, so to speak, that this is cutting edge. Uh, whether we're talking about DNA splicing, whether we're talking about mind machine interfacing, which is really going to come along in a major way in the very foreseeable future, uh, wow. where we're going to see virtual worlds uh, become far more realistic than what they are today where we are going to be able to see computer uh, 
brain interfacing in ways that that even i mean what we're talking about sounds like science fiction right but really really what we're talking about is is almost old hat already which is kind of that's the part that's kind of freaky where does it where does it go after this right uh, and, and there are some of the guys who recognize that, that, there, that there are problems. And then I've ran into transhumanists who really, frankly, don't care. Uh, whatever happens, happens. Let's push forward. Let's yeah. let this happen. I look at that and go, okay, that's really the troubling side. I've talked to transhumanists who are like, you know, we don't know where this is going to end up. And we do have concerns. And then I've talked to others who are like, uh, full speed ahead, Whatever happens, allow it to happen. That's just the evolution of our race. I'm like, right. oh, Dinah, that's scary stuff. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that stuff up. We've actually, you know, in, in some past episodes have covered a lot. I would say most of some of the things that you mentioned there um, and, and, you know, like mind, mind uh, computer interfacing and uh, virtual worlds and things like that. We've, we've looked at, you know, what kinds of technologies are sort of headed our way. Well, I have, I have a sure. question real quick. Now you mentioned the uh, the virtual worlds, the virtual uh, sort of realms, and then you know, and when we talk about transhumanism, uh, in my mind, I kind of consider there to be a few different schools of thought, and um, two that are different enough for me to wonder which way we're going to go, one or the other, is the use of these virtual worlds in you know living a happy life or you know maybe a paraplegic lives in this you know virtual world where they have legs or something like that versus you know sort of gearing towards the happiness of the individual um, going into sort of a virtual world versus you know uh, actually manipulating the human body um, to 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 work well in the in sort of the real world yeah, I, I take a look at some of these technologies, and there are definitely medical benefits. There are, are, are actual lifestyle benefits. There's no doubt about it, especially when you're talking about a scenario like what you're just mentioning. Right. Uh, at the same at the same time, I'm, I'm looking at how uh, even things like Second Life, which, again, I've participated in Second Life for quite some time, it becomes a tool uh, for some type of social transformation. It does open you up. For the idea that that our world now can be completely remade, according to what we desire, according to to you know the hive more or less, right. and, and there's actually some really fascinating studies that that have been done, and just simply where this goes in terms of, of social transformation, how we view our world around us, even the sense of identity uh, and the sense of belonging, how that changes and shifts with the idea of a virtual environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, for myself, I even notice it. I, I enjoy going into Second Life. I enjoy doing the virtual worlds because I'm meeting new people. I am experiencing new things. Uh, I enjoy actually going to places like the University of Delaware where they stream in uh, conferences into the Second Life campus. And wow. then for myself as a participant, sitting in the Second Life campus at the University of Delaware, asking questions of the real life person on the stage and then helping to, to in a sense, uh, communicate and, and, and bridge ideas back and forth. It's really fascinating when you realize that, oh, you know, I can ask uh, so-and-so a question right now uh, and shape the course of the conversation that we're having right. thousands and thousands of miles away through this virtual world. Right. 
Right. That's, that's pretty wild. And that seems why it would be so uh, attractive. It seems like, you know, you can create a world, write some code, and just facilitate so much human involvement. And I mean, it's, it's, this is not a new idea. The idea of, you know, almost strictly living within a virtual world, um, your, you know, your physical self sort of just being a controller almost. Um, I mean, that idea has been around in movies and books and everything, but uh, is that something that you could see in the near future? <laughs> That's a great question, and I, I think the person who has the answer to that question uh, probably would be able to to <laughs> to capitalize quite well on the stock market. <laughs> right, right. I'm sure. I, I don't have that ability to know. And nonetheless, uh, I, I do see I do see changes coming in terms of of the technical ability of, of of virtual spaces, whether it's Second Life or any of the other ones that are out there. Um, and uh, the whole idea of the mind-computer interfacing for myself, I find that very intriguing uh, because it does bring up the whole issue of, of uh, just how do you project yourself, the changes that will come upon your even your own perception of how you now interact with others in the world. I, I had an experience... This is already back in 2010 when, when I was at that uh, the Mormon Transhumanists Conference. I had an experience there that really kind of blew me away, and it wasn't actually at the conference. It was when I was walking through the University of Utah, which is where the conference was being held. And I'm a book, book lover. I have an extensive library. So I was spending a little bit of time in their library, and it really struck me. There was nobody in the library. It was empty. Then it went into the student commons area, and there's hundreds and hundreds of kids there, hundreds of students, like there should be, but it's silent. <laughs> it was spooky. Nobody was talking. Everybody had earbuds in. Everybody was basking in the glow of their open laptop. Everybody was texting, and the place was silent. Wow. And I thought, I thought to myself, Am I seeing the future already right here in action right now? Is, is this what it will become? A bunch of us just sitting around the glow of our laptops or our pads or whatever, plugged in, oblivious to everybody else around us, oblivious to our neighbors, oblivious to reality. It really kind of was, was very striking. Again, this wasn't in the conference. The conference, we're actually ironically talking about some of these things, but then to actually see it. Uh, hundreds of kids, just more or less silent. I, I mean, I'm old school. I wanted to pick up something, throw it, and say, "Yo, food fight! <laughs> Let's have some fun!" But my word, it really kind of blew me away. You bring up something right. interesting—the uh, education thing. Um, I actually had a question about that because it seems that education, at least in America, anyway, um, and I'm sure in some other parts of the world, is sort of the foundation to shape our social behavior and, you know, shape our attitude of, of certain things. How do you see the education system being used to bring this about, bring about this change socially and, you know, structurally and, and politically on all the elements? I know they sort of overlap, but, um, I haven't written anything on the technological side of, of education uh, in terms of the philosophy that comes through. Yes, I've written extensively on that, uh, primarily in the areas of religion, how, how people look at the environment, the idea of human unity and oneness. Uh, you know, the ideas behind this in terms of, of our educational programming stems quite deep. Uh, to, I'll just give you one example. 
if you ever have a chance to, to, to go on Amazon or whatever, wherever your favorite online bookstore may be, to look up an old book, look up the Environmental Handbook, written in 1970, prepared for the first environmental teach-in on April the 22nd, 1970. And it was the idea, pardon me, 1971. It was the idea of the very first Earth Day. And the Environmental Handbook was passed around to high schools and to college students uh, by the thousands. There were, there were hundreds and hundreds of, of, of different examples where teachers used this textbook in their classroom as discussion points on, uh, regarding how the world should be remade and reshaped. My own high school used it in that sense. The Environmental Handbook makes it very clear that Christianity is to blame for all environmental problems. We need to reshape and rethink a new religion. Uh, we need to look at massive population reductions. We need to look at an international political system. Even the idea of families need to be changed. The idea of, of a village raising, the child, uh, raising your children. One particular section actually suggested palangious marriages which is the opposite of polygamy, the idea of one woman with multiple husbands, because then everybody could be gratified and you would have a minimum amount of children being produced through it. <laughs> oh, uh, my goodness. It, it was wild stuff. Wow. And, and this was used as a school textbook already back in the day, in the early 1970s, uh, to help people transform themselves into what this new community, this new global socialist progressive community would look like. Wow. And do you think, I mean, just hearing you mention some of those things, uh, I sort of see it manifesting or um, externalizing itself in culture. Uh, if you look around, I, I feel like that's definitely uh, happening more or less. Uh, what, if I may, you you go to a lot of events. It looks like <laughs> a lot of stuff that that this this information gets passed around. It, was there one in particular that sort of blew you away, or one in particular that you know just had more of an impact on you personally? Yes, yes. Why don't uh, you share that with us? Wow! In fact, this fits hand and glove with what we've just been talking about. In 1997, I attended my first event of, of, a, of a global nature, and it was the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress, 2000 days before the year 2000. Wow. Uh, it was sponsored in part through the Canadian Department of, uh, not Foreign Affairs, pardon me, uh, I, I can't remember, oh, no, uh, Canadian Department of the Environment, uh, whatever the exact term is, I can't remember. Anyways, a federal agency dealing with the environment and with uh, Canadian educators, and they brought in Robert Mueller, uh, one of the leading visionaries of the United Nations, and the event took place in Vancouver, British Columbia. And for three days, I watched as educators, as teachers, as students, because they were there. We had approximately 300 students from, from the ages of, of about six and seven, all the way up through to university level, uh, how we discussed uh, for three days what was important in terms of, of religious change, philosophical change, a worldview uh, and paradigm change for a new global order. And, and I sat there as, as kids literally were being brainwashed. That's, in essence, what was coming about. Robert Mueller did a fantastic job of presenting the world's problems by mimicking Mother Earth. So he'd say something to the effect of, of I'm Mother Earth. I am Gaia. 
what you're doing to me is killing to kids killing me all your all the children that you're having you're killing me with your with, with the huge amount of children you're producing and then he'd go on and on and on it was fascinating as as we had different workshops of how we would address these problems of overpopulation uh the wrong attitudes and how we would develop a proper system of global citizenship and how some of the schools that were involved some of their ideas that came forward really for me they were they were mind blowing uh the idea one, one probably the most wild one uh was was a group of girls um Golly, they would have been 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. They were sitting next to us. And they demonstrated their idea of how to change the world by putting a girl on the table with two pine boughs in her hands. And she expressed herself that she was now Mother Earth, that she was, was the goddess. And the girls around her that was sitting around the circular table each in turn laid hands on her and confessed environmental sins. And then after the environmental sins were confessed, such as my dad has a car that uses too much oil, uh, I wear leather shoes, um, my neighbor had does something wrong, you know, whatever the situation may be. After that, each girl in turn explained how they would change the problem. I will, I will report my father. I will, uh, I will oh. buy. Yeah, I, yeah, literally, that was it. <laughs> it was just like you guys are cracked. Uh, and then Mother Earth, in turn, forgave them, each in turn, of their environmental sins. During the Q&A session, we had a 14-year-old girl who stood up weeping, weeping, demanding that the, that, that the answer to all, all these problems would be the end of children, and we couldn't have any more children. We had, we had an educator, a mother, uh, who would have been probably in her late 50s, stand up. She was bawling, and, and, and she was... She was absolutely emotionally distraught because she had committed such a grave environmental sin. She had brought, I can't remember how many children into the world, I think four or five. And now she was looking back with regrets. Oh my goodness. I know. I was totally floored. This is my first experience with this. We had one young lady who came in late. um, And so she wasn't, she didn't get a chance to sit through the entire brainwashing session. But I ended up having coffee with her uh, later on that afternoon, and I asked her, what, what do you think of this? And she says, you know, I'm going to call my, my parents. I'm going to get out of here before they convince me not to have my kids. I said, do it. Wow. Get out of here. Wow. So, yeah, that was my first taste of this, and it was, you could say, the more radical side to it all, but it really demonstrated to me just the heartbeat of it uh, and, and the blasphemy of it. Uh, over and over again, we were told that, in essence, we were all divine. We were... We had to look at ourselves as being part of the cosmic, uh, the, the the cosmic consciousness. Um, right. It was pretty freaky. Wow. Yeah. No, and that's the, incredible. Okay, and here couching it all, the purpose of this whole thing was to help develop the World Core curriculum, a philosophy of curriculum which is pantheistic in nature, and then integrate it into the Canadian education system, coast to coast. That was the whole idea behind it. Oh. Wow. Ugh. My goodness. The rubber, it's the road. Yeah, seriously. Now, I mean, with with as much of this that you're telling me, um, I mean, uh, are there secular groups or secular people who are opposing this? I mean, it seems like, at least from my point of view, and, and I'll be the first one to say that it's, you know, it could definitely be wider, but it seems like uh, Christians 
are, you know, or people like Christians are uh, uh, opposing the NWO, are really the ones getting gung-ho about it, you know, the good Republicans and the Libertarians and, you know, Midwesterners are, are the ones sort of against it. Um, I know, and Canadians. I'll give that. <laughs> A handful. <laughs> A handful of Canadians. Um, but, I mean, is there secular resistance? To a point, there is. Yes, you, you do see some of that. Um, I, I think more often than not, however, the secular side will will not look so much at the religious or spiritual or, or even the philosophical side. Right, uh, right. Primarily because that's an area that, that, that either unnerves them or, or they have no interest in or don't necessarily see the bearing of it. Right, right. Or, or they may see the bearing of it in the sense of, of a bigger picture, but don't have uh, a personal stake in the matter, so to speak. Uh, so there definitely is is something amiss when when the religious side is taken out, especially because the the whole idea is couched in in, in the philosophy of, of of what man is all about or what man wants to achieve or become. Right, right, and I see. I, I find that so fascinating that I mean, even with all the apparent non biblical things. Um, that uh, could go wrong with the whole technocracy and NWO. Um, I mean, I guess it's not surprising that when somebody doesn't have a spiritual sort of stake thing, uh, you know, it's easier to be like, oh, well, they say they want the best thing for me, so I guess let's uh, let's do the old NWO. Let's give them a let's give them a go at it. <laughs> I think people need to realize that the that this idea isn't well. Number one, we've talked about how it's not new, but but to give you some more specific examples, people need to realize that what we're talking about here has already been tried before in a smaller sense. This is a social experiment, a human experiment, and it has been tried in places like the Soviet Union. In fact, that was the part of the experiment. Hmm. Uh, we have had eighty or ninety years of that experiment all the way up to the early 1990s. Uh, it happened. It happened in in uh, Nazi Germany. The whole idea of national socialism, actually, Germany was more at that point in time, uh, a form of racial socialism. We saw it with fascist Italy, which truly was more of a, of a national socialist system. Um, we, we saw it with, with Mao and, and the Cultural Revolution, uh, with Pol Pot and his form, twisted form of, of agrarian communism. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And all of these examples, the result was massive bloodbath, massive shedding of human life. Because human life, when it really boils down to it, in this type of a system, doesn't mean much if all we are is just part of a, some huge social machine looking to achieve unity. Then, if that's the case, and you stick your head above the crowd... Your head's gonna take. Your head, in, in essence, will get lopped off. You keep the hedge trimmed even. It's this idea of equality, uh, and we can all come together around a, a human form of equality, whether it is international socialism or whether it is a form of technocracy, which really is actually, in many respects, a socialist way of looking at things. What's fascinating about socialism isn't that it's about the poor. It's not about labor. Socialism, in its, in its sense of where, of where it came from, was the idea of management. That's what socialism was really all about. Now, let's take 
and put special plans and designs, regulations and enforcements on the human community, and we will manage it the way that we feel to be the best way forward in terms of human progression and evolution. It sounds a lot like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Venus Project, I'm guessing you have. Oh, yes. Uh, that's oh, yes. almost to a T uh, what you're describing there, sort of a, a society based on management from machines that sort of, you know, guide and help. And again, you know, when you mentioned keeping the hedge, you know, even that, that really reminded me of uh, all the uh, sentiments there, but kind of echoing Basil's question, um, you know, as this sort of happens, you know, and and we're we're already seeing it happen. um, Do you expect to see some sort of uprising from somebody, some group that may really oppose this idea of moving forward in this direction? Or do you think that, uh, you know, we're more sort of being indoctrinated, um, you know, enough to where we accept it. Sort of from, uh, you mentioned Neil Postman. Actually, one of my favorite quotes is from Neil Postman where he uh, talks about, you know, the the uh, society based on pleasure. Um, do you think that yes. there is, uh, that there are going to be oppositions, groups that rise up and have sort of a, uh, maybe, a, you know, a civil war or some kind of, uh, I don't know exactly how to, to describe what it might look like, but is there something that, that you foresee that uh, will come up against this thing as this, uh, I, I like to call it the beast system, as this thing sort of externalizes? And the behemoth is, is huge already. Uh, I, at this point in time, I have, I have a difficult time seeing a, a nonviolent or even, for that matter, a violent opposition to it. Uh, we, we have come around to the point where we have become so ingrained within the system that to take ourselves out of the system would cause us, ourselves, individually, and literally, to, to, in a sense, to fall apart. Uh, go ahead and try to live off the grid, completely on your own, with a, with a family and a community. It, it's very, very difficult to form an uprising opposing this. Yeah, sure, you have little elements of it here and there, but it doesn't seem to matter. It seems that the bigger picture continually moves forward. And I think that's because the largest percentage of us, in our heart of hearts, wants to see it move forward. Yes. Uh, we, we want to see this progress because somehow it is a reflection of our own hubris as well. And it is. Uh, we're, we're all hubristic in this sense. We all think that, that somehow we, we, will, uh, we will advance, in, in essence, from a community or from a social perspective to the next level. And so we have this, we have this idea that sin, especially within our culture now, sin is is not biblically what it, what it is. Uh, sin now, in terms of an international perspective, is anything that may come against the idea of unity. Uh, we see churches now completely enam- enamored with some of these very ideas that we're talking about. And this is what I find troubling, is that, I mean, I've been speaking on these, these issues already since, oh golly, 1995, writing on it from about 1995, but full-time from 97, uh, my research goes back to about 92, 93. And what I find troubling is back then there were voices, myself as a small voice, but there were many other voices of people saying to the church and to the secular community, be aware, this is what's happening. This is the social and cultural transformation taking place in your own pews, in your own business, in your own community. Be aware of this. Don't be gullible to it. Be wise. 
make sure that you can take a stand against it as you see it arise right within your own circles and to do it tactfully. And what happened? It, it was, in essence, the voices were, were shut out. Um, and in, in many respects, we were nothing more than kind of like a, a squeaky wheel, so to speak. Ironically, now it's 2012, and, and the very things that we were warning about back in, in the mid-1990s are coming to fruition in spades inside the church, inside our communities. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it tells me that we've been asleep and really in a sense intentionally asleep for a long time we have amused ourselves mm. to death yeah which is really interesting right. that you bring up the church it it actually for you know like the third time or something you sort of segue into the question that i had coming up here but um you know specifically with the sort of institutionalized church and you know, i guess tying into it this sort of idea of a global religion um and i know you've written about some of that uh, but you know, since we're sort of talking about technology as well, I, I sort of I'm picturing how a, a global religion can be produced or brought about with the use of a technological future, a technological I don't know system sort of in place holding it, and then you know whatever ideologies come from that sort of build this spirituality. What are specific things that are ch- that the church is doing in regards to accepting a one world? religious system just in terms of the spiritual side peace Mm. it's always about peace we need world peace and so we'll do whatever we need to do uh we'll trim whatever hedge we need to trim in order to have world peace and this is something i've seen over and over again within christendom as we will sacrifice truth we will sacrifice common sense we'll sacrifice reality and historical reality on the altar as long as we have peace. And I've seen this continually, whether I've been at United Nations events or at interfaith events. Uh, it's this idea that humanity needs to come together in peace. And you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, you can be a, a Muslim or a Christian. It doesn't matter. You can even hold to your very specific beliefs and structures as long as they don't interfere with the idea of peace and world peace. And of course, that brings up some really interesting quandaries regarding what's happening within the Muslim community. And yet at the same time, there are Muslims around the same circle as Christians and Buddhists and Baha'is, all speaking the same type of language, recognizing that they can come together around these shared values of a global ethic and global peace. And they are networked, well-networked, and that's where your technology does come into play, your communication technology specifically. Uh, and your your and other technological platforms, and uh, it's it's really interesting when you when you sit around these tables, and and you watch as what what you thought were strong evangelical, uh, you know, fairly conservative at least you thought were conservative individuals representing organizations, and, and you realize that they're all speaking as brothers, they're all speaking as as partners in this great design of human oneness, and. Uh, is really kind of mind-blowing. Uh, in 2010, I was at the G8, uh, G20 World Religion Summit, which is exactly what I'm describing right now. It's, it's this idea that religions can come together, and now that we're a networked world, we can do this in ways we could never fathom before, and we can become a force, an influencing force, as religious communities working together for world peace to influence our, our political and our business elites uh, in, in, in down the, going down this road. And, and of course, what we're talking about here means that there has to be some type of sacrifice. 
and because especially for those for those religions who have a truth claim, right. um, you know, and that that's just the way it goes. There has to be a sacrifice in order for us as Christians to sit around that table. Right. But, we're, but we're willing to make the sacrifice, and in many cases, we've done it already, and we've done it a long time ago. Well, and as believers, how are we to sort of navigate that concept, that overarching concept, that peace? It needs to be the most important thing because, I mean, that's that's part of what most would call biblical doctrine. Is you know, the, Jesus taught peace is the prince of peace. You know, how do we, with as shaky and twisted the labyrinth is that our Lang- that is language in our words and a word like peace is very powerful um, it's just a very powerful wor- word in the human mind so as believers when we hear that word and when we start being asked to make decisions and change you know dogma or, or, or make sacrifices uh, what does that look like for the normal believer to uh, navigate well, first of all, we have to ask the question, what are you asking for in regards to peace? Uh, and we also have to then ask the question, what is this peace going to cost us? Uh, it, as soon as you start really thinking along those lines and analyzing what's being said and what is being presented and, and, and what it will cost to, a, to achieve that, all of a sudden it, it brings up a whole slew of, of different issues altogether. And you realize that, okay, uh, we've got a, we have a language going on, a language in a sense that, that's really more propaganda related. Peace, you're right, is, is a great word. It's a fantastic word. Who's against peace? Interestingly, Jesus said the world is going to hate you because it hates me. And that doesn't sound too peaceful. It doesn't sound very peaceful at all. Uh, and, and when you take a look at the exclu- exclusive truth claims of, of Jesus Christ, you realize that, that that doesn't fit within this idea of a collective, peaceful world. In fact, it divides. It ends up dividing by its very nature. I've, I've witnessed this at various United Nations events. I saw it actually, uh, ironically, at a UN event that had nothing to do with with religion at all. The uh, the World Urban Forum back in 2006, they had a special session on, on religion and the city or spirituality and the city. Um, and for about three hours, we had religious leaders discussing among themselves what it would look like to have a truly global, peaceful, uh, internationally minded city. And the first recommendation that came out was that uh, uh, we need to have uh, our, our cities um, create brand new structures, brand new policies, policy structures, uh, new bylaws that would, that would penalize and shut down any religions that would have exclusive truth claims that would be divisive in those truth claims and then open up the uh, new centers for interfaith and pluralistic work. I'm like, oh, well, here we go. This is it. And there's Christians right within right. the room saying, this is wonderful. We, we can all work together. And I'm like, you guys, the whole idea of equality doesn't work. It sounds great. Equality is another one of those wonderful buzzwords like peace. We want a world of equality. You know something? That's a fallacy. There is no equality in the world, and with the exception that, number one, we were born all in sin with a sinful nature. And that's, in a sense, more or less where it ends. There are other areas that we could dive into, but reality of it is, who's equal? None of us have equal noses. None of us have equal physical features. None of us have equal bank accounts. None of us have equal skills or talents. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. 
None of us are equal in terms of even, uh, let's say, how we operate with our family structures. The list is endless. In fact, we even die unequal. Uh, some of us who will die with, without Christ, we have a, a different eternity to face than those who have died with Christ. And so already at death, the idea is we are no longer equal at that point either. But that, again, is the common buzzword over and over again, just like peace. We all have to be equal. Well, you want equality? Slavery is perfect equality. Mm. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, we uh, uh, the church that Basil and I work at has, and I wrote this down, I just pulled it up because— uh, it struck me, and uh, you know, there's a there's a little cafeteria area there, and they have a they have these banners, and and this church is very big on outreach. It's big on helping out the community and the poor and the needy and all this stuff. But this uh, this slogan sort of struck me. Um, it said, "Engaging a global movement, building a network of church partners dedicated to long term sustainable change." And, <laughs> and I remember reading that, thinking, "My goodness, like if." If uh, if all the stuff you're talking about here um, is true, then you know even this this church that we attend that seemingly is going at this with a with a you know pure heart, they're even sort of playing into this whole globalization without even thinking that they're do- doing anything that's sinister or wrong or you know anything like that. So in that sense, if you can speak to I guess the the greater institution of church in America or I don't know how it's like in Canada, but if you can speak to, to those communities, what would you tell them in terms of, you know, how to actually be grounded in the faith and still be able to uh, make an impact that's positive? Well, well, number one, do what the church is supposed to do, and, and that is to make disciples. That is to help those around us and to make disciples. Uh, yeah, the, what you just described to me is a wonderful buzz phrase, um, but is actually quite meaningless it sounds good. It makes us all feel good. Um, we might send off some money to Africa somewhere. We might, you know, who knows? We might send a team somewhere to go do something wonderful. We've had an experience. That's all great. <laughs> fine. Fine and dandy. But really, it doesn't mean much. But what does mean much is when we take the words of Jesus Christ seriously, when we recognize, when we recognize that we have people who are, who are hurting spiritually and physically all around us, right within our own communities, my goodness, even within our own families, uh, and start to take that serious, uh, then then we're starting to see where the rubber hits the road. Um, your church, if it's reaching out to its local community by presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ and also helping out where it can physically, wonderful, fine, dandy, the Great Commission. Uh, that's, I mean, historically, that's where the church has been at. And it's it's important to meet the physical needs, sure, but it's as important, if not more important, to also meet the spiritual needs. One comes with right. the other. Uh, faith and works work together. Once we've we, once we have recognized that we have been saved through faith, good works are supposed to come through right. that. And that makes a lot of sense because what's the difference between a church going out there and feeding the homeless and some, you know? just a goodwill group that's doing the same thing, you know, and it's that spiritual component that, uh, that makes the difference. So I totally agree with you there. Basil, did you have, uh, anything else there brewing in your brain? Oh no, not about that. That was great. Well, one quick thing with, with, with the buzz phrase that you just gave, I mean, it sounds great. It, it, 
it wasn't your church's idea. I'll tell you that right now. So <laughs> nobody has an original idea. Believe me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a, it was a phrase you could have heard at any United Nations meeting. You could have heard it at any. Golly, you could have heard it anywhere in a secular setting at all. I mean, right? Y- yeah, and that's where you have to start asking the questions. What does that mean? Right. And if it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> just discard it and go with what means right, something. Right. Yeah, that's that's right. the same sort of feeling I got too. Which you know, again, it's it's difficult to uh, you know criticize. I guess your your home church or whatever. But at the same time, I've I haven't been shy about <laughs> some of the things that I've seen <laughs> that, that it gets me into trouble often with uh, with conversations I have with people. But well, I find I find if we could just go back to the buzzwords yeah. for a second, I've actually I'm just actually kind of ju- getting getting a little bit fired up about that because I mean my my degree was in uh, communications and and so it's so interesting to see how the buzzwords affect church culture as a whole. I mean, there are dudes who literally only speak in buzzwords. All the only words they say are part of buzzwords and buzz phrases. And I mean, many of us know a guy like that. And a lot of times he's in the church leadership. Oh, you know, actually, that so reminded it, me, I actually got a book that um, for free a few weeks ago uh, after this big conference we had at our church for young leaders. And, and Basil, I think you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, I'm skimming through this book and, you know, they're talking about changing culture and all this stuff for the church. And one of the first things they talk about is changing your language, you know, using those buzzwords to get people on board with the with an idea. So, I mean, you know, it's just it's propaganda, you know. Right. We, yeah, we, exactly. We're boiling Christianity down to slogans. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. I mean, we, we really are. We're, we're, we're putting Christianity in a pot, everything that we can think of, and then we're boiling it. And we're coming up with a slogan in the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you can even see it when it comes to even sharing the words of Jesus. It's like, I wish I had a specific example, but it's almost like, you know, Jesus talked about, uh, you know, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and, and to, you know, and so you don't tell people that. You know, you don't go tell people that if you want them to come to church. You know, I mean, obviously, those are the words of Jesus, and they, they, they mean different, you know, things to different people. I mean, we're not literally feasting on human flesh, hopefully. And But even from the very basis that is Christianity, we're having to sort of run it through the old PR machine, Um mm-hmm to make it sort of in one way, secularly acceptable. You're right. Uh, one, one biblical example I see in terms of how we need to start reacting to these types of issues is the example of Paul and specifically Paul at Mars Hill. And if you take a look at that experience, uh, it is completely, you could say, an interfaith experience. It is, Paul recognizes that there is a plethora of gods that they are worshiping, that they are very spiritually attuned. Uh, he, he, he enters into discussions with them in the marketplace. He knows their culture well enough that he can respond to them and communicate with them by even quoting their own philosophers, their own people. He does it all tactfully, 
And yet at the same time, he brings things around to the, the nature of God, the, the, the problem of sin, and the personage of Jesus Christ. But it's fascinating how he has an understanding, number one, of their own culture, of their own society, enough that he can use it as, you could say, leverage to open the door to bring about a discussion of, of something that has far more right. value. And I'm looking at Christianity today, I'm going, you know, the world has become one massive Mars hill. Um, we need to start taking a look at how we present truth tactfully and honestly. And even if it's confrontational to some extent, so be it. That's the way, that's the nature yeah. of truth. Uh, but we still do it in love. Paul did it in love. And he was willing to debate and discuss in the marketplace of ideas and bring about the the character of God, the the, the nature of man, and this and the, and salvation through Jesus Christ. Recognizing at the end, when you read the rest of that passage in Acts seventeen, that some scoffed, and others said, "You know, we'll we'll hear more about this later." Um, Paul didn't necessarily see fruit. We can't say that that Paul all of a sudden saw a mass amount of converts at Mar at Mars Hill at Athens. But what we can say is that he planted some right. seeds. Yeah, totally. Uh, I totally agree with you there. So, Carl, as we sort of wrap, start wrapping things up, um, what do you see is uh, is kind of the next big move? The I know it's been sort of going on the whole time, but in the last twenty years, um, have you seen spikes or just acceleration of certain things? And then uh, the second part of the question is, what do you see in the near future for us as the next big? either event or movement or push, or is it just a continual ascension to this uh, global order? Well, if we don't have a catastrophic economic meltdown, uh, which is still a real possibility, if we don't have war uh, and the potential possibly even for, for regional war, uh, particularly in the Middle East, then the, the other option of, of continual gradual change, and it's not even gradual anymore, it seems to be in leaps and bounds, will continue on a pace and probably accelerate in its pace. But as soon as you enter into a, a, a conflict or a crisis mode, all kinds of things happen, all kinds of things change. I was this summer at a World Federalist Movement uh, Congress. Every four years, the World Federalist Movement, which is the largest pro-world government advocacy group on the planet, and, and the World Federalist community was instrumental in bringing the United Nations to fruition after World War II. Uh, the International Criminal Court wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the work of the World Federalist community, particularly the World Federalist Movement. The whole idea of responsibility to protect the military doctrine that was used to, to launch military actions against Libya last year, that was spun out of the World Federalist Movement and the World Federalist community. Anyways, all that said, this summer they met in my home province of Manitoba, and uh, they took a look at, at where the future lies. What will the next five years look like? What will the next four years look like? What should be the new programs we push forward in this quest for world government, in this quest for a unified political and economic system, because they do deal in some of those issues as well. And right. over and over again, I heard the words that came up uh, centered around the idea of crisis. We need a conflict. It was interesting because they spoke of peace and the desire for world peace and for world order at the same time recognizing that what probably will be required will be some type of global catastrophic event. 
something to push us and force us down that road, recognizing that World War I brought about the League of Nations, World War II brought about the United Nations and the Bretton Woods mm-hmm. system, and now we're on the cusp of, of, of a change, a sea change at the international level. And, and it, it just seems to be hanging in the balance. It just, something, it just seems to be, it, something needs to, to tip right. it. And so there's quite often of a tipping point, a coming tipping point. None of them could put their finger on what it was, but all of them were saying what we need to do is develop the structures, the attitudes, the worldviews, and specifically the architecture, politically and economically, and beyond that, it also deals in the social realm too. We need to develop those, those structures and put them in place so that when the conflict or the crisis occurs, and after the ashes have cooled down, we can present to the world our idea of world government our idea of world peace and world order and the world will flock to it and they will this is how we work this is our nature when crisis occurs the opportunity presents itself to step in and present a solution yeah that and that's the idea that sounds again exactly like uh alice bailey's work (laughs) of her talking about yeah it does (laughs) yeah all right it's a those yeah, exist. yeah, it's amazing how it's just sort of being played out. It's sort of, uh, you know, when I've read some of Alice Bailey's work, it was almost like a blueprint to what's happening today, which is quite alarming. Um, but uh, one last question, and this is sort of a curveball, I guess. Uh, but, you know, this sort of uh, crisis and chaos that, that is brought about, and then this new new order that's going to effectively save the day. You know, we, we speculate a lot on this uh, on Canary Cry Radio and, uh, you know, just this realm of conversation. Inevitably, the topic of extraterrestrials are going to come up. What's your opinion on that? I, I've never actually heard you talk about that. Do you have an opinion about it or do you think it's uh, even part of the agenda or, or could it be used as sort of a... Maybe the crisis you were talking about. It could be the about. crisis or it could be, you know, it could be either or, I guess. But, um, I, I mean, from my understanding of what I've read on some of the ET, you know, enthusiasts is that they're actually going to be the saviors. So in effect, they're going to come around after this crisis, you know, to sort of help, you know, stop the nuclear bomb from going off or whatever, whatever it may look like. Do you have uh, any opinions about that? (laughs) You're right. I've never written about it. I've never even really spoke about it a little bit, but not much. I have studied it. I've studied it fairly extensively. Uh, My opinion is that the, the the present UFO phenomena, and primarily what we have what we understand through channeled messages and some of the other messages that have come through mediums from the so-called space brothers, is from from what I can figure out here is the teachings of fallen angels, the te- teachings of the, of the of an evil supernatural element. It's interesting when you start to dive into the channeled writings from supposed uh, extraterrestrials who have come multitudes of light years to our earth to save the environment, to introduce to us Marx and socialism, uh, to introduce to us Buddhist enlightenment. Uh, the list goes on and on. It's, it's phenomenal. I, I mean, amazing. You've come all these light years to tell me about how we need to become communists, how, how, how we, you know, how we all can become gods. I, I've got 
a whole section of my library of channeled extraterrestrial writings. And yes, some of the stuff from, from the 1970s and 80s is, is, I mean, it's wild because it's, it's presenting Marxism with uh, a greenish skin, uh, <laughs> alien kind of viewpoint. Uh, and then some of the other channeled writings at the end of it, it's like, you are all gods. You just don't know it yet. And I'm like, sorry. I mean, this is all you can give us? I'm not buying that for a minute. Yeah, and obviously, I've, I've pointed out in the past, um, you know, just the the uh, endorsement of Jesus that all these different groups want to have, you know, that he's either a star commander or he's a, you know, he's, he's whatever he is, you know, and they never, they're never consistent. So, and, you know, in scripture, it tells us how to test those spirits in, in First John there. But, yes. um, well, Carl, uh, we want to just thank you so much for taking some time out of your day and coming on. Is there, obviously, forcingchange.org, is there anything else that you're currently working on that you want to uh, sort of pitch out there? Well, you know, every month we, we do put out a new issue of our, of our newsletter, Forcing Change, which goes into so much of what we've been talking about here. Uh, working on some project that, that projects that hopefully down the road will will see the light of day, uh, primarily a manuscript project, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of take it one day at a time. At this point, our focus is primarily to, to put the Forcing Change Journal into the hands of people right now, because, my goodness, there's six years of, of incredible analysis, documented essays, reports, the list goes on, and, and if there's anything that, that I guess I have a hang-up with, it's a stickler towards the attention, towards detail. And so everything here is very heavily detailed and documented so that people so that people have that as a resource. It's not just simply an opinion piece or commentary. Right. Well, right. there you well, have there it, you everybody. Have- Carl Tycrime, forcingchange.com. Make sure to check it out. Check out his articles there. Thanks again for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to check back next week. And until then, think outside the cage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on StumbleUpon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you can do so by visiting CanaryCryRadio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage.